please remain standing as we read from God's Word. My name is Pat Husky, and it's my privilege to serve the women here at FBC. Today, we're going to be reading in the scriptures in John chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Please be seated. Join me as we pray and ask God for his help as we look at his word. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, especially, God, how you have chosen to make yourself known through the person of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. God, we ask for your kindness wisdom and understanding as we seek to know you through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus was talking to two guys, Peter and Andrew, and he said this to them, which then has now become sort of a famous verse, which you've probably heard before. This is what Jesus said to Peter and Andrew. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. When I was a child, and we would in the summers go to five-day clubs, and you would learn verses and sing songs. A song that was a required uh, song to be sung during that time was, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I'm not singing it for you. You're welcome. <laughs> One uh, famous leader said this way, do you wonder whether or not you are a leader? Look behind you. If there's no one there, you're not. 
And so what has happened is we have sort of created in our minds this sense that someone is leading if someone is following, and the kind of leader they are is determined by the kind of people that would follow that individual. And Jesus is a little bit different. Jesus is not a leader because Peter and Andrew followed him and the other disciples. Jesus is a different kind of leader. He is one who leads because of who he is. So the Apostle John at the beginning of his gospel, John chapter 1, describes Jesus this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about Jesus in these verses, and he goes on to say, all things that are were made by him and for him. So what he is saying about Jesus is he is not a leader because people are following him. He is a leader because he made everything. By his very nature as the eternal God who has made all things for himself and by himself, he therefore is leading, whether or not anybody decides to follow him or not. So Jesus tells Peter and Andrew, follow me, I'm leading somewhere. And the question we might ask ourselves as we look at the final days and hours of Jesus' life is this, where's he going? If Jesus is leading, where is he leading? What is the way that Jesus is leading us to? And he's going to lead us two places in particular we're going to look at this morning. First one is this, Jesus leads the way to life. Jesus leads the way to life. And what's interesting about Jesus is he doesn't say, that's the way to life, go there. He leads us to life, and we follow along with him. There's a movie that came out a few years ago. I can't remember how long ago. It was called The Wizard of Oz. Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> At the beginning of the movie, Dorothy and her crew are getting ready to head out to the Emerald City. I don't want to give away how it ends. I, spoiler alert. She is instructed by, I think it's Glenda. Does that sound right? Yeah, I don't know. A lady in a white shimmery dress. She says, to get to, the, get to the Emerald City, you follow the yellow brick road. You've heard the song. And she doesn't go with them, though, does she? No, follow that road, and it'll get you to the Emerald City. Bye. And she's out. Drops the mic, walks away. Jesus is different than that. He says, I want to lead you to the way of life, and I'm going to walk that road with you, and I want you to just follow me down that road. And so we know the destination of where Jesus is leading. We know the destination. It's life. That's where he's taking us. That's the ultimate arrival point of where we're going when we follow Jesus. The question we're trying to answer is not where are we going, but what's between here and there? That, that's the bigger question. We know where it's going. That's fun. That's great. We're going to follow Jesus to life. What kinds of bends and turns and hills and valleys does this road have on it? Thankfully, Jesus, because he leads us to life, is going to show us exactly what's on that road, and he shows us by walking it himself. John chapter 18, verse 4. You can follow along in your copy of Scripture or just listen as I read these, because we're going to be going fairly quickly. Jesus had had supper with his disciples, and they had made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he had had a time of prayer, and after that time of prayer had ended... A group approached Jesus led by Judas the betrayer. This group involved Pharisees and religious leaders and political leaders as well as a set of soldiers that were armed with uh, clubs and swords and spears as well as torches. Jesus, of course, knew everything that was going to go down. 
Verse 4 says, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and he said to this group of people in the middle of the night in the Garden of Gethsemane, whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Why didn't they recognize him? Well, there was no Facebook back then. There was no printed papers back then. Many of them would never have seen Jesus. They don't know what he looks like per se. Plus, it's the middle of the night. It's dark out. Jesus volunteers himself. I am he. Judas, of course, was standing there with him. But look, verse 6 of of, uh, John 18. When Jesus said to them, I am he, what happens? They drew back and fell to the ground. So here's this great array of soldiers armed to the teeth and religious leaders and political leaders. And Jesus says, I'm the guy you're looking for. And they all just fall down. And as they're clamoring and picking up their torches and their swords and their spears and sort of straightening out their their outfits, wondering what just happened, he goes, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And, And he says, I'm the guy, not these guys. So what is Jesus doing here as he's leading the way to the place of life? He wants everyone involved, you and myself included, along with all these soldiers and religious leaders and political leaders, as well as disciples, to know this. He is not being captured that night. He is not being captured. He could at any moment not merely knock them down, but knock them out of their boots, and knock them into next week, knock them into the afterlife. This Jesus is not one to be trifled with just because he came and is fully God and fully man. At any moment, if he wanted, he could dispatch these so-called captors. Jesus is making it clear this road to life, he is voluntarily walking and submitting to what needs to go down. Everything that's about to happen to him is according to his plan and is only happening because he says, okay, I'll do that. He is voluntarily being arrested. He is choosing the way to life to show us that the way to life is the way of humble service to those who need his help. He was serving those who need his help, that is all sinners, by humbly submitting to a humiliating arrest by weak and powerless soldiers. He says, okay, I'll submit to you, that's fine. Because some people need my help, that is sinners, so I'm willing to humbly serve in that way. Jesus submits to them and they take him to the religious authorities. If you're following along with me, we're now going to go down to John chapter 18, verse 19. Jesus is now in front of the high priest, or at least the high priest's father-in-law. The high priest is questioning Jesus. They want to know all about his disciples and all about his teaching. Fill us in on what you teach and what you believe. And here's what Jesus answered to this high priest. This is verse 20 of John 18. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. He's saying here, listen, I have not done anything in secret. Everything I've been teaching, I've been teaching for three years in public. Why are you asking me these things? Someone was standing nearby to Jesus, and he struck Jesus with his hand. He punched him or slapped him. doesn't say where he hit him or how he hit him. Closed fist or open fist in the stomach and the back. In the face, we don't know, but he got hit. 
Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus responds this way. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? What do you call that when you slap the God of the universe and he goes, now why would you hit me? We call that mercy and grace. That this guy wasn't a pile of ash. The moment his hand struck Jesus is Jesus' kindness because Jesus is voluntarily submitting to mistreatment in order to serve sinners who need salvation. Jesus is leading the way to life by telling these religious leaders the truth. You know what I'm teaching? I came to forgive sinners. I'm the Messiah. He showed that by healing the blind and the lame and the lepers, by raising the dead and feeding the 5,000. He made it quite clear he fulfilled all the mandates of the Old Testament prophecies for the Messiah. He is the Messiah. The problem is this Messiah came to save sinners. Why is that a problem for religious leaders? What need do you have of a religious leader if you can get your sins forgiven directly from God? You don't need them. What do you do with a religious leader if you don't need the religious leader to give forgiveness? Why? I'm going to cut out the middleman is what we're going to do. I don't need you, Mr. High Priest. I can go directly to God for my forgiveness. I don't have to follow your mandates anymore. The religious leaders understand if people can get forgiven by God directly, they no longer have control over people's lives. If the religious leaders in Israel no longer control the people, Rome will no longer have any value for them. The only reason the Romans put up with the religious leaders is they were useful in keeping the people of Israel under control. And if Jesus shows up and makes the religious leaders obsolete, well, that's a political problem. And they want to figure out what Jesus is teaching. And Jesus' teaching is simple. You can go to God for forgiveness. And as the Messiah, I will show you the way to do that. So he tells them the truth. I have come to forgive sinners. If you're a sinner, Jesus says, I have come to forgive you and to save you. If you're not a sinner, you're lying to yourself. But if you're not a sinner, you don't need me. He makes this quite clear. The religious leaders need to kill Jesus, and the only way to do that cleanly and without getting themselves in more trouble than they already were was to have Pilate, the Roman governor, on board with it. So down in John chapter 18, verse 33, Jesus is delivered over to Pilate, and Jesus finds himself standing in Pilate's headquarters, now being questioned by Pilate. Pilate asks Jesus this question at the end of verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers Pilate, do you say this of your own accord or did others tell you about me? I'm not sure if he was being facetious or rubbing it in or being annoying. I don't know what Jesus was doing to Pilate there, but he was trying to get Pilate to use his own brain. But we're going to discover exactly what's on Pilate's mind. And Pilate says, am I a Jew? Do I look like a Jew? Your own nation, your own chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done that these people want you dead? And Jesus says, look, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting uh, for me that I wouldn't be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom's not of this world. Jesus wants Pilate to peel back the curtain and look behind the scenes and say, there's a bigger deal going on here than Rome and Israel and this little world. Jesus says, my kingdom is an eternal kingdom of all that is. It's a bigger kingdom 
But at this point, an unseen kingdom, Pilate says, so you are a king then. And Jesus says, you say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? It has become a famous line for Pilate. It's one of the most insightful things Pilate says, and I want us to think about this a little bit. Sometimes we think maybe Pilate here is the hero of the agnostics. He is the first one of many to finally admit that certainty is impossible to have, and so therefore he's telling Jesus what every people have always believed. You can't be certain about anything, so what is truth? Now, Pilate may have been thinking along those lines, but I think Pilate's a little bit more practical than that. Pilate knows something we all know. History is written by the victors. He wants Jesus to understand what he understands, which is this. I'll tell you what truth is, Jesus, whatever I say it is, because I'm Pilate. I'm the Roman governor here, and truth is determined by whoever is in charge. If I say two plus two is five, two plus two is five, and if you want to argue with that, I'll kill you, and pretty soon two plus two is five, and there's no mathematicians living in Israel because of Pilate. That didn't really happen. That was an example. I don't want you to... There was no mathematicians. People are going to post it on Facebook. How do I know this is the case? Look what happened. Uh, Pilate went back outside and he told the Jews, I found no guilt in him. What's the truth according to Pilate? He's not guilty. He, he admits it. He says, there's nothing in here that he should die of. But there's a custom at Passover. We release a prisoner to you. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And what do the Jews say? No, we want our hero, Barabbas. He's not a hero, but they'll take him. Any hero other than Jesus at this point. They cried out again, not Jesus, but Barabbas. Barabbas, of course, was a rebel and a, and a robber. So then Pilate made truth. What was true? John 19, verse 1, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Is Jesus guilty? Well, no. Has Pilate decided his truth is Jesus is guilty? Yes. And what does Pilate believe what is true? Whatever I believe is true. What I believe is true, a guilty Jesus is convenient. He had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. Of course, they put it on his head, not gently. They put him in a robe, and they were beating him with sticks, and they were punching him and screaming out in mockery, Hail, King of the Jews. And Pilate went out again, and he, he displays Jesus to these religious leaders. Behold the man. Chief priests and the religious leaders and the people got everybody riled up. What they start screaming? We know the line. Crucify him. Is Jesus guilty? No, but we're creating what is true because Pilate believes whoever is in charge, whoever has authority, creates the truth. The Jews said, we have a law. According to that law, this guy has to die because he claimed to be God. What's interesting is the religious leaders never really wondered what Jesus taught. He had the gall to teach that he was God. They were quite clear on that, right? Even though they were questioning him earlier about what he taught, they knew what he taught. He was claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Problem is, they didn't want this kind of Messiah. They knew what he taught. This bothered Pilate that he might be killing someone who claimed to be God. So he goes in and talks to Jesus again, verse 10 of uh, John 19. Pilate said to him, where are you? 
Where are you from, I should say? And Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said this to him, You will not speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You'd have no authority over me unless it be given to you from above. The one who delivered me over to you has greater sin. Jesus leads the way by taking his authority. There is no authority above Jesus. Now, before creation, during creation, and standing in front of Pilate. Jesus' authority has always been and will always be, what? The highest authority. Jesus uses his authority to voluntarily submit to Pilate's much, much lower authority. See, yeah, you got some authority. We'll roll down, we'll roll down that road because Jesus is saying, I voluntarily walk down this road to life. This is the road of life, voluntarily submitting in service to those who need it, mistreatment, and ultimately, sacrifice. Verse 16 of John. Uh, John 19, I should say. Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. So, of course, they took Jesus outside. They took him along with two others who were going to be crucified with him to a place called Golgotha. Pat read it earlier. They nailed him to a cross, would have nailed his hands and his feet to the cross, raised him up on the cross. This, of course, is a a, a miserable way to die, and unfortunately, it's not a very swift way to die. They affixed above him a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Jesus leads the way to life as king. He rules by doing the job until it is done, and the job of bringing life goes to the cross. That's where life is going to come from. The road to life in Christ goes to the cross, and Jesus intends with his power and authority to finish the job until it is all the way done. They divided up his clothes. Some of his clothes could be divided up. His tunic in particular couldn't be divided without ruining it, and so the The soldiers gambled for his tunic, and the Bible tells us that this occurred in order to fulfill the scriptures. This is in the book of Psalms. They divided my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. Jesus here, completely humiliated, unclothed, displayed while being tortured, all the while prophecy is being fulfilled. Verse 28 of John chapter 19, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. Here's what's funny. Jesus is on the cross, and we might assume that in the, in the heartache of it all, in the physical pain of it all, in the spiritual darkness of it all, he's just trying to get through it. And here we discover Jesus has a checklist. He's got a punch list, and he's not going until the job is done. Jesus, knowing all is now finished, said, in order to fulfill Scripture, I imagine Jesus on the cross kind of working his way through the Psalms. Okay, we did that. Okay, got that done. Got that. Oh, sour wine. Got to get that one off the list. I'm thirsty. See, everybody thinks Jesus is is yielding to the powerful Romans and the powerful uh, religious leaders of Israel. Jesus is doing precisely what he means to do, precisely when he means to do it. The one person on all of planet Earth in this moment that is in total control of what's happening is the guy on that cross. 
They hand up some hyssop. He takes the sour wine and he says, it's finished. When he said it's finished, he's not saying my torture is over. He's not saying it's time for me to succumb to my physical injuries. He's saying to you and to me, your sin thing, handled. Handled. It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's at least worth being reminded of. We talked about it a little bit at our Good Friday service, but let's remember this again. The Romans did not kill Jesus. The Jews did not kill Jesus. Jesus' physical injuries did not kill Jesus. Jesus, at the appropriate time for him to offer his life as a sacrifice for sinners, gave up voluntarily his spirit for sinners. Jesus leads the way to life and it goes through the cross, but by God's grace, it doesn't end there, does it? John chapter 20. Mary Magdalene made her way out to the tomb. We know from the other scriptures that he and some of the, she and some of the other women were going out to apply the normal uh, perfumes to Jesus' remains. When they get there, they discover the tomb is open. She notifies Peter and John, and they go and inspect the tomb and also discover that it is empty. Verse 9 of John chapter 20, this is astounding. As yet, the disciples did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. How many times did Jesus tell them this? You know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They had a lot going on. They were very busy for the last three years. But how did they not know this information? We know they knew the information. They didn't believe it yet. Mary was weeping. Jesus greets her as we read earlier. Whom are you seeking? Who, what, what's the answer to that? She's seeking Jesus. Problem is, what kind of Jesus is she looking for? She's looking for a dead Jesus. There is no dead Jesus. Jesus has raised from the dead. Mary, it's Jesus, risen from the dead, and he is going to the Father, and he tells the disciples this, down in verse 19 of John 20. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus now is saying, the road to life goes through the cross, the road to life extends through an open grave, and now the road to life is walking your life as I have walked it. I was sent by the Father to bring life to this world, and now I'm sending you. Tell the people what you have seen. I have died, and I am risen, and all who will believe in me receive forgiveness of sins. More than that, verse 22, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, in Christ you receive the same power he lived with, which was the power of the Holy Spirit, to do what God has called us to do. One last guy we're going to talk about here for this moment. There's a guy named Thomas. You've heard of Thomas? How come we've all heard of Thomas? Because we're just like him, that's why. Thomas is not sure that Jesus is raised from the dead. He hasn't seen him yet. So what do we call him? Doubting, that's terrible. What should we call doubting Thomas? Normal Thomas. <laughs> Human Thomas. I, I don't know, doubting Thomas, ridiculous. Nobody's buying this. So finally, Jesus shows up, and Jesus smacks him and says, why are you such a doubter? Doesn't he do that? Absolutely not. What's he say? Look at my hands. Look at my side. Just stick your hand in there. This is a, it's, not a, it's not makeup. It's a real wound. What does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. 
to Jesus. He worships him. And Jesus then mentions you and I. Did you know we're in the Bible? Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those 2,000 years from now, Easter of 2022 at FBC, who have not seen and yet have believed. What does John say about all this? And this is how John sums up his book, the Gospel of John, in verses 30 and 31 of John 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. These that are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. Jesus leads the way to life, and the way we follow him is we believe Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, who came as a man to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our rebellion. And when we trust what he did on the cross was for our sin, we participate in his forgiveness, and we receive his righteousness. More than that, we participate in his resurrection and have eternal life. That's why these things are written that we might follow him down the road to life. Jesus leads to life. And the way to have that life is to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Believe that he forgives sinners like you, and by faith you receive eternal life. Jesus leads the way to life. There's another way that Jesus leads, though, and I want to conclude with this, if you don't mind. I think we have a little bit of time. Jesus leads the way to victory. So Jesus does, in fact, lead the way to life, but there's more than that. Jesus leads the way to victory. For those in Jesus by faith, we follow him to life, but we also follow him to victory. Even though that road to life takes us through difficulty, takes us through challenge, and at some point takes us to our death, at the end of the day, being raised with Christ is not merely life, it is Victory. I want to show you a verse. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 37. It's a famous verse. It's one you may have committed to memory. I will read it nonetheless. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are what? More than conquerors. You walk up to a Christian. You want to be a conqueror? What do you say? Nope. What do you want? More than conqueror, please. I will not settle for merely conqueror. I insist on what Christ has provided more than conqueror. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors and nothing can separate us from Jesus. That's really good news, is it? Now let's look at what that road looks like as conquerors. The context of this road is Romans 8.31. What shall we say to these things? I'm going to read a little bit of scripture, and I'm sorry if that gets a little dull. And by, by saying I'm sorry, I just want you to know I'm not. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So answer it. If God can be for us, who can be against us? No one. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, that is Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Very convincing. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? No one. Can't do it. 
Who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now we've gotten to verse 37. In all these things we are more than conquerors. The road of victory is the same road Jesus walked. It's a road of ups and downs, dips, valleys, highs, lows, pains, sorrows, joys, happiness. At the end of this road is graduation. On this side, we'll call that your funeral. On the other side, we call that victory. More than conquerors. Resurrection is our victory in Christ. Death cannot stop us because victory in Christ is guaranteed for all who are in Christ. And that example is, and that I should say is, resurrection in Jesus, eternal life. I want to give you five examples of victory. Do you mind? It won't take that long. You're going, five examples, 10 minutes each? That's another hour. No, we won't go that long on each. And who's doing math? You know what we do with mathematicians. We've already talked about that. First one is Acts chapter 7. Five examples of victory, conquerors in Jesus. Stephen was giving a sermon. I'm hoping this sermon doesn't end the same way this one did. He said this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels did not keep it. By God's grace, even at the end of this sermon, people came forward. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw what? The glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus, what was he doing? Standing. He said, behold, this is Stephen speaking, I see the heavens open. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I have victory. Do what you will. I've already conquered. I don't need you to raise your hand. I don't need you to give at the office. I don't need you to respond favorably to this message, Stephen is saying. Throw your rocks. Do your worst. I've already won. They cried out. They got, they got riled up. They rushed him out of the city. They cast him out of the city. They stoned him, laid the garments at, at Saul's feet. As they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's amazing what Jesus-y people do when Jesus-y stuff happens. They start acting like Jesus. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Or as we might say, when he had said this, he won. Conquered. Stepped across the threshold to a cheering mass, including his standing Savior. That's conquering. Because he was in Christ, he is raised. Little bit of suffering. Yeah, nobody wants to get stoned. Nobody does. But that's only this much time. And now he lives forever in victory. Another guy. Not in your Bible, but in your history books. His name was Eric Lydell. 
Of course, you know him from Chariots of Fire. You've seen the film. He was a runner. He went to the Olympics. More than that, though, he was a missionary and he went to China. While he was in China sharing the gospel, a war broke out with Japan and he was imprisoned. He sent his family out of the country. He spent the rest of his life serving all of the people imprisoned in this internment camp. While there, he developed a brain tumor. Of course, he received no medical treatment. To his last day, he worked tirelessly serving the individuals in this prison camp. And there, somewhere in China, there's a statue there now of him, he died. He lost, right? No. More than a conqueror. Victory. Because he is raised in Jesus. He didn't need a million people standing in a stadium responding to the gospel to be a victor. He could die in a nameless bed in a nameless internment camp serving people nobody's ever heard of. And he is a conqueror. Because he is raised with Christ. Another fellow, you've heard of him, Jim Elliott. He served the people in Ecuador along with his friends, seeking to share the gospel with them, working tirelessly to try and earn their trust. They did not do that well, apparently, because those people they were trying to reach at a certain point decided they were enemies. And Jim Elliott and those he were with were all killed on January 8th, 1956. Jim Elliott's most famous quote, which became more poignant after his death, is this. This is uh, my version of it. He is no fool who is willing to lose what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott lost what he couldn't keep anyway, and he gained what? Victory. Conquered in Christ, raised in Christ, gained what he can never lose because of a risen Savior. Conqueror. Martyr is not a good enough term. It's conqueror in a risen Savior. Vitaly Vinogradov. When did he die? I'm not exactly sure. They found his remains in Bucha after the Russians had withdrawn. Vitaly is, or was, the dean of the Slavic Evangelical Seminary in Ukraine. He has spent his life training for ministry, attended Bible school and seminary in Ukraine, and now had dedicated his life to training Christian leaders and evangelists and pastors and teachers, that they may continue to do the work of reaching the people of Ukraine with the gospel of Jesus. Then some nameless soldier, on a whim, on his way out of town, ended Vitaly's journey, finding his remains in the street along with hundreds of others, right? So his death, meaningless, right? Senseless, right? A waste, right? No, no. What is Vitaly? Say, it's a conqueror. He walked across the threshold to a a cheering throng and a a savior standing by the father's throne saying, get in here. Get in here. Victory for Vitaly. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Probably not. I'm not Ukrainian. Last one. You're like, please stop. This is depressing. I want you to realize this isn't. He's raised. If this is depressing, then the savior is probably not raised. See what I did there? If he's raised, these are just stories of people running across the finish line full speed. Bonnie Witherell. This picture is not a very good one because I took this picture with my phone in my junior yearbook at Moody. 
Bonnie's name when we were in school together was Bonnie Penner. She married Gary Witherell, graduated 1996 from the Moody Bible Institute. On November 21st, she was serving with her husband in Lebanon. She was serving at a women's medical clinic as an assistant to the medical people there, providing medical care to the people of Lebanon. Then, in hushed voices and quiet corners, out of the view of others, she would tell them a little bit about her faith in Jesus. Couldn't do it publicly. This is Lebanon a year after September 11th. She was serving well, along with her, along with her husband Gary there in Lebanon, until an extremist showed up at the clinic November 21st, 2002, and with a handgun, ended her journey. So what a waste. Was it a waste? Have you picked up the theme here? What do we call that? Conqueror. Conqueror. Running across the finish line, full speed, into the arms of Jesus, and he says, get in here. More than conquerors, if Jesus is raised, these are stories of heartache just for a short time. And then we run across the finish line to a, a, a Savior standing by the throne of grace saying, get in here. You are victorious. Not because of what they did. Not because they were awesome sauce. Why are they victorious? Because of what he did. He came out of a tomb so one day they could come out of a tomb so that one day you and I come out of a tomb. Jesus leads the way to life. And the way to life is a, a life of his humble service and sacrifice, a willing to set aside everything that he deserved to gain for us what we could not gain on our own, eternal life through the forgiveness of sins. The only way to gain victory and to conquer at the end of time is to be in Christ by faith. My prayer for each one of us here is we would be more than conquerors. That that day, whatever day it is for you, when you go running headlong across the finish line, that you're running into the arms of a Savior who already made the way for you. I don't know what's between here and there, but I know it's not easy. And your life may be a short life with a, a sudden and quick end and a victorious end that somebody will share as an illustration in a sermon someday, or you will be like most of us, serving in quietness, in the background, unknown, but quietly resting in a Savior who has forgiven you, there is no such thing in Christ as a life that is futile. There is no such thing in Christ as a life that is not for him. Whether it be serving out in public squares or serving quietly on our own, Jesus gives us life and meaning through his victory. Jesus leads the way to life, and he leads us to victory over sin and over death through the resurrection. But it means we have to trust him. It means we have to believe the historical record that Jesus isn't dead. Because Jesus forgives sinners like us, those in Christ will all be raised to victory. Not because of what you do, because of what he did. Jesus, we thank you for the kindness you have shown us in Christ. That while we were still sinners, you died for us. And Jesus, we give you praise and glory and honor for your power and might because you cannot stay dead. Jesus, you have the victory over sin and over death. God, you are the only one who can give us hope that actually lasts to the end of time. All other hopes are fleeting. All other things will fade away over time. 
You, Lord, instead are raised from the dead, and so we can look at our lives and we can have hope, knowing no matter what the future holds, one thing is true. In Christ, we are more than conquerors, and the day will come where we will stand with you in victory. God, I am praying for those here right now who are still in their sin and rebellion. I would ask in this moment that you would show them in their heart that they need a Savior. That all the other things they have tried to bring hope don't work or only worked for a short period of time and what they really need is life in Jesus. You're not promising a rosy path to the future. You're not promising anything other than forgiveness of sin and life forever with you. I pray in this moment, even now, God, you would give them the grace to trust Jesus for salvation. God, many of us as Christians, though, have had our lives upended from time to time. And if not, Lord, we look at the world around us and wonder how anything could ever work out for the future. Father, would you give us the strength to believe anew that we have victory in you. Our future is certain. Yes, the road between here and there is going to have some, have some stuff. But God, we know you're going to carry us to the very end. And we're going to have victory because you only win. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he's raised from the dead. And we can't wait till you come back. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand up as we close with a song?